Fresh, fresh keys to open ancient doors. The lock is turning. We are enslaved no more. Fresh, fresh keys to open ancient doors. The lock is turning. We are enslaved no more. Or oh, fresh, fresh keys. To open ancient doors, oh, the lock is turning. We are enslaved no more. Oh, I see fresh, fresh keys to open ancient doors. The lock is turning. We are enslaved no more. Oh, fresh, fresh keys. To open ancient doors, oh, the lock is turning. We are enslaved no more. He's given out fresh, fresh keys to open ancient doors. Oh, the lock is turning. We are enslaved. Come on and sing it out. I need my fresh, fresh keys to open ancient doors the lock is turning i am enslaved no more fresh fresh keys to open ancient doors oh the lock is turning we are enslaved no more and we take the keys for the church we take the keys for our sons and daughters. We take the keys. Oh, we receive the keys of those fresh, fresh keys to open ancient doors. Oh, the lock is turning. We are enslaved. Here comes the church with the fresh, fresh keys to open ancient doors. Oh, the lock is turning, we are enslaved no more. Arise and shine, arise and shine, your light has come. Arise and shine, your light has come. Arise and shine, your light has come. Fling wide the doors. Arise and shine, your light has come. Arise and shine, your light has come. Arise and shine. Just take a peek out of the window. Open, open the door to your new season. Oh, don't peek out the window. It's not the time for a little bit of vision. It's time to push open, push open, push open the door. Seasons change. Seasons change, seasons change, when you live by His name. Seasons change, seasons change, when you live by His name. Oh, sing it one more time. Fresh, fresh keys to open ancient doors. The 
clock is turning We are enslaved no more Those things that have tried to keep you in your past season Put your hands out and receive the fresh keys, the fresh keys, oh, fresh, fresh keys to open ancient doors, oh, the lock is turning, we are enslaved no that fresh keys come on get rid of those old ones you've gone through a million times trying to open that stubborn door oh and receive the fresh anointing oh the fresh anointing oh the oil burning oh the oil burning this is the fresh anointing this is a fresh anointing for the oil burning, oh, the oil. Come on, we need it. We need a fresh anointing for the oil burning, a fresh anointing. My fresh, fresh keys to open. Let's sing over the church. Fresh, fresh keys to open ancient doors. The lock is turning. You are, you are enslaved no more. Sing it out over the church. Fresh, fresh keys to open ancient doors. Oh, the lock is turning. You are enslaved no more. As David mentioned, Rick challenged myself and David and Travis Newton, who's our pastor at the beach, uh, to just start having more interchange, to be connected. And so we have started praying together over the phone, had a real powerful time a couple weeks ago and have one, I think, uh, scheduled this week. Uh, but one thing that I have seen about David since I've known him is he really carries something for the nation. You know what I mean? He's a patriot, but he's a prophetic patriot. And he also carries something regarding the urgency of the hour. There's something about a wake-up call and a trumpet that I think that God's put in his mouth. And I think that that's one of uh, the, the mantles on this house is that things that 
go from here are meant to go to the nation. There's actually meant to be uh, messages, and I think that that's part of Morningstar's calling as a whole, but I think it's a specific calling that you have here, and I'm sure that you're familiar with the prophetic history and all of those things, but uh, there's something significant, I think, about what David and Shirley are carrying. I'm just so uh, blessed to be in relationship with them and also to be here with you this morning. So looking forward to it. And uh, the reason I I was actually already here in Moravian Falls before uh, I even, or I I was planning to be here before David even asked me to come preach because about twice a year I come for maybe 36 hours to come and write in Moravian Falls. I mean, it takes an act of Congress for me to leave for a couple days. I've got three kids, seven, five, and two. Uh, My wife works in the evenings as a therapist, as a family and marriage counselor that uh, Bob Jones and Sean Boltz and Bob Hartley, major prophetic voices, called her out and, uh, you know, called her into this unique calling. Uh, But because of all of that, plus pastoring the church, it's like a big deal. I mean, you know, I'm happy to be here. I love it. But it's hard to get away for a couple days. So it was the perfect timing that David just so happened to invite me to be here with you on this weekend of all weekends. That was really cool. Um, I wanted to, uh, I want to share something that uh, I believe is relevant for you as a body uh, and it has to do with something that uh, is right here on the property, as in right in the backyard, that I want to talk about. Um, and I believe that there is something about the times in which we live that if we're aware of the times and the seasons in which we live, we can actually align our heart with the heart of God in a way that opens up a possibility of intimacy and a prayer life and relationship with Him that's maybe not been available to other generations before us. You know, I don't have an elitist kind of mentality or, you know, that we're better than anybody else, but I do think that there is something special about being alive in these days. There's something unique. You know, Paul told us in uh, 2 Corinthians 10 that large portions of the Old Testament were written for the generation at the end of the age. He said, you know, these things that happened in the Exodus story and, you know, the first five books of the Bible, they happened as examples for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And whether the ends of the ages means that the Lord's coming in a couple decades or whether it's my children's children, I think we should be living awake and living aware that we are preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. And because of that, because we're in a unique season in history, we actually have an identity that, again, has been true of many generations, but is something unique, something that's special to our generation. And uh, part of that is that the Lord has described the generation at the end of the age as a bride, as a bride. You know, uh, I remember whenever I was, uh, I was a first-year Bible school student and I was engaged to my wife, we lived about six hours apart, and I would often leave 
uh, from Charlotte, where I was living, to drive six hours to Tennessee to, to be with her. Sometimes I'd get off of work at 9 or 10 at night, and I would drive all through the night. You know, that six-hour drive I'd make in about four and a half hours sometimes because, you know, I was either translated or breaking the law, one or the other. But, you know, I would get there because I was just so in love that there's no way I was going to wait till the next morning to go and see her. I was going to get off of work or finish with school or whatever, and then I was going to drive through the night to see her just to have a couple days with her and then have to drive back. And I remember one of these one of these nights, we were engaged, you know, I was a bridegroom preparing myself for the wedding day, she was a bride preparing herself for the wedding day, and uh, I had driven through the night, four or five hours, five hours, something like that, and whenever I pulled in to the driveway of her dorm, uh, I got out of the car, she got out of the dorm, and it was like, if you can picture like the sappiest scene from a movie you can imagine... I'm jogging towards her, the wind is in my hair, she's running towards me, and, and right as we were about to embrace, right as we were about to hug, the Lord spoke to me as clear as I've ever heard him speak, and he said to me, this is right out of Isaiah 62.5, he said, just as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God rejoices over you. It was like he wanted to capture something in that moment. You know, my wife and I, our first kiss was on our wedding day. It was the first relationship I did right out of, you know, 20 plus years of doing them wrong. But uh, there, were, there was something very pure about our romance. And there was, there was a yearning in my heart to be married to my bride. And this was just a couple months before the wedding. And this is the first time I'd seen her in a month, and it'd be another month before I saw her again. And there was something about what I was feeling right at that moment that the Lord wanted to mark and say, remember the rest of your life what this moment is like, because the same way that you feel about your bride right now, that's how I feel about you, just as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. The reason that that is... Uh, it's relevant for everybody, but it's especially relevant, uh, I believe, for this church is because uh, in 1983, Bob Jones prophesied to Mike Bickle, and uh, Mike tells the story. He said, I already thought Bob was the strangest man I ever met. He said, for months, I didn't know if he was of God or of the devil. I just knew that he had a lot of supernatural stuff going on. And uh, Bob prophesied to Mike and said, I have seen my grave, and I saw that my grave had the rose of Sharon growing out of it, and my death will be a sign to the earth that it's time for the church to step into her identity as the rose of Sharon. And this is the bride of Christ identity. This is uh, Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 1. It's the Shulamite, you know, it's the same kind of bride and bridegroom kind of story. It's this story of a bride and a bridegroom who are just waiting for the wedding day. And they're, you know, very, very vivid in describing their emotions leading up to the consummation of the marriage. And at the beginning of the book, the bride has this revelation about, she says, I'm dark, but I'm lovely. 
You know, I haven't kept my own garden. I've been slaving away outside under the sun. And in those days, a woman having dark skin was not considered to be attractive. Like now, women pay hundreds of dollars to go tan somewhere. Well, then if a woman was suntan, it was a sign that she was not wealthy because she was out working in the fields. And so she says, well, I'm dark, I'm suntan because my brothers have made me work in the field and, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't be considered beautiful because I'm dark. And it's, of course, a parable or an allegory of how we must come to that realization as well, that even though we've still got issues, even though we're still working through our stuff, we're in hot pursuit of our relationship with the Lord. And even while we're being transformed, we're still lovely to him. And that's in the first few verses of Song of Solomon. But by the time you get to chapter 2, verse 1, something has clicked, something has changed with her. And she says to him, I am the lily of the valley, I'm the rose of Sharon. And so in other words, she's saying, I realize now that whenever you look at me, you don't see the dark person that I see. You actually see this beautiful, exotic, unique flower. And he does her one better. He says, no, you are like a lily among thorns to me. You're not just the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon. You're like a lily among thorns. In other words, whenever I look at you, you're not just this amazingly beautiful, exotic flower. It's as though I'm looking at a whole garden full of thorns and you're this beautiful flower standing out among all the thorns. You stand out to me. It's like the Lord saying to us, whenever I look at the face of the earth, you stand out to me. You have my attention. You've caught my eye in such a way that you're like the most beautiful rose among an earth full of thorns. That's what I think about whenever I look at you. And then... The bride responds and she talks about uh, how she sits in his shade, she enjoys his presence and she eats his fruit. His fruit is sweet. It's this picture of communion with the Lord and just enjoying his presence. And then she says, oh, I'm lovesick. That's how she describes what she's feeling. She says, I'm lovesick. If I could encapsulate the way that I feel right now, I'm lovesick. You know, lovesick has a connotation of both passion and desire, but also pain, right? Because it's not just I'm in love and my heart's overflowing with joy. It's I'm lovesick. There's something in me. I'm so in love. I've caught a vision for what our marriage is going to be, but I'm lovesick because I'm yearning for the wedding day, but it's not here yet. And I know, again, whenever I was waiting for the wedding day, whenever my, uh, my fiancé and I, who's now my wife, were waiting for the wedding day, living hours apart, even though I was so happy to be married, and God was doing a lot of amazing things in both of our lives, I would have had to have said, I'm lovesick. I'm yearning, but there's something that I'm missing. There's something that I'm desiring that I don't actually have hold of yet, I'm lovesick. And that's a picture of the church at the end of the age, especially because we're longing for the wedding day. We're looking for the consummation. 
We're looking for the day whenever heaven and earth become one. You know, this whole 6,000 plus years of human history is going to come to a grand conclusion whenever Jesus is going to get what he wants and whenever the Father has prepared a wedding day for his son. And he says that wedding day must be full. And on that day, the bridegroom and the bride are going to be joined together as one forever dwelling on the earth, never to be separated. Again, there's a day that's coming whenever the king will return to the earth and he'll make all things new. He'll make all things right. There will be no more sin, no more sickness, no more sorrow. There will be no more devil, no more authority of demons. There's a day coming whenever all things will be made right. All things will be made new. And you and I are actually called to live with a vision for that day. We're actually called to live as those who have seen what is to come, yet we live in a place of yearning because we live in this world. You know, this present suffering that's not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. This momentary light affliction that's but a shadow of the, the eternal glory that we're actually waiting for. And so I think we have a unique position as the church at the end of the age, whether it's a hundred years till the Lord comes or whether it's 10 years, I have no idea. I just know that you would have to be either, you know, pardon the expression, but either ignorant of the scriptures or of world events in order to not understand that we are nearing that time of the coming of the Lord. And so actually uh, the last 36 hours, 48 hours, however long it's been, the reason that I was here was to finish, and I'm 99.9% finished. I am like, I'm probably a couple paragraphs away from finishing a book that I've been working on for five years. And so again, I get to come here about twice a year and, you know, lock myself away. I get more done in 24 hours here, I'm not exaggerating, than I do writing-wise in four or five months back home because there's no distractions. I don't even answer the phone or anything, so it's absolutely awesome. But this book that I've been writing is about inaugurated eschatology, to just use a big word that makes me feel smart. And what it actually is about is, uh, you know how on the day of Pentecost, Peter makes this very puzzling statement whenever the Spirit of God is poured out, he preaches and he says... This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit. And there will be signs and wonders and sons and daughters, young and old, male and female. All of them will prophesy and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He's speaking of a great last day outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But somehow 2,000 years ago, Peter said, it's happening now. Well, either Peter really, really missed it, or there's something else going on there than we would initially see at face value. Uh, the whole kind of paradigm that, you know, that I've been writing about, and I'm not trying to sell you a book, it's going to be a while before it's out, but I just, I felt last night, I actually had a totally different message prepared uh, to speak, but I just felt last night the Lord kind of shifted things on me. Um, this idea is that something began 
with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that marked the beginning of a new age. The resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit shifted things in the earth so that humanity entered in to an entirely new epoch of history, an entirely new season. Whenever the Spirit of God was poured out on humanity, there was now a new kind of human walking on the face of the earth that had never existed before. It was humanity made ready as a temple by the death and resurrection of Jesus and now indwelt by the very person and presence and power of Almighty God. Something shifted and Peter said, this is that. Something began on the day of Pentecost, but there will be a fullness of times There will be a culmination, a consummation of the ages. It's what Acts says that Jesus is being restrained in heaven until the time of the restoration of all things. There will be a time at the end of the age, at his second coming, whenever that which began at Pentecost will be completed. And it actually won't happen until the Lord comes again. And from now until then, we're in the last days. We're in, you know, the the Greek word is the eschaton. It's where we get the word eschatology. We're in this unique age between the ages. You know, you and I live in this unique age that is entirely different from however many thousand years before Pentecost. And it's entirely different than the, you know, countless eons after the Lord returns. We live in this unique season where Jesus told us in John 14, 12, those who believe in me, parentheses would be by the power of the Holy Spirit, John 14, 12, those who believe in me will do the works that I did and even greater works because I go to the Father. And so he was saying, you know, the power of the Spirit is going to be released to you and because the power of God's going to be poured out on you, you're going to be able to walk in everything that I've walked in and even greater because I've gone to the Father. In other words, whenever Jesus was walking on the face of the earth, he was the faithful witness to the earth of the coming kingdom. He revealed the king who was coming and he revealed the coming kingdom And as long as Jesus was here, there could be no question of the reality of the age to come. I mean, there could be no question, absolutely for sure, God is real and what is written in the Bible is true. Jesus was a walking manifestation. I mean, he could read out of Isaiah 61 and say, what you just read in the pages of Scripture, it's happening right now. It's me. I'm the one that the Bible prophesied about. But then Jesus went away and he said, I'm going away, but it will actually be better for you. It'll be better that I go away because if I don't go away, I can't send the paraclete, the helper, the comforter, the one who comes alongside when you call. That's what paraclete means. It means the one who will be with you as I was with you, but it's better for you because the Spirit of God can be poured out on billions of people And Jesus could only walk with 12 at a time. So it will be better. And somehow, between now and the time the Lord comes, you and I become the faithful witness of the age to come and the coming King. 
It's one of our primary roles in this interesting age between the ages is that somehow we were actually called to be, you know, to, uh, to use a phrase I think has been used before, but we actually are called to be the people of the future in the present age. We're actually called to be the people of the age to come, and it's because the power of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on our lives. It's a very unique calling. It's so unique that whenever Jesus told his disciples, he said, you know, tarry in Jerusalem, wait until you've been endued with power from on high. They actually said, oh, 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 Jesus, that means you're about to restore the kingdom to Israel. Because they're thinking, if you're about to pour out the Holy Spirit, we read about Samson already, we already read about Deborah, we read about David, we read what happens whenever the Spirit of God comes on somebody. If you're about to pour the Spirit out on all of us, you know, hundreds of us, then there's going to be a hundred Samsons on the earth. They, they misunderstood something about the manner in which the kingdom of God was going to come on the earth. Yes, there will come a day whenever an army will throw off all the evil armies and evil governments of the world. But from now until then, you and I are called to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit and to reveal the reality of the age to come. It's such an incredible calling. It's such a, an absolutely glorious reality that we get to host God in our body. We get to be temples of the Most High God that just like the Ark of the Covenant would be carried, you know, anywhere that Israel carried the, the Ark, this gold box, God was with them. God was there. Well, now, I mean, you and I are suited by the blood of Jesus to be Arks of God, to be temples on legs that we actually get to carry God with us everywhere that we go. And just like whenever Jesus was on the earth, you know, he, he somehow gave authority to his disciples and gave power to his disciples before Pentecost, but he would say to them, look, I'm giving you authority, go out, and everywhere you go, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, go out, move in power, cast out demons, and be sure you preach a very specific message everywhere you go. Preach to them the kingdom of God has just come near you. Be sure you tell them as the power of God, the power of the Spirit is moving, that the kingdom of God that they're waiting for, this was Israel that they were going out moving in power. This is, you know, a whole nation of people who were, you know, obsessed with the Hebrew Scriptures, all the prophecies about how God will be king from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth, about how His glory will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. They, they were waiting for the kingdom to come. Remember what it said about Joseph of Arimathea when he came to get the body of Jesus? It says he was a devout Jew who was waiting for the kingdom to come. That was all of Israel who were devout Jews. They were waiting for the kingdom to come, and they had a biblical vision of what that would look like. Whenever the kingdom will come, God's going to somehow sit on a throne, and He's going to overthrow evil. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to conquer the demons. He's going to somehow eradicate sin, sickness, sorrow, and Satan, and somehow the kingship of God, the kingdom of God, is going to fill the earth. 
He's going to reign from Jerusalem and he's going to have a perfect government that will fill the entire earth. And so whenever Jesus sent them out saying, move in power and preach the kingdom of God has just come near you, he was, he was about to incite a riot. <clears throat> he was about to cause some kind of a stir in Israel because, again, they would have thought they're preaching the kingdom's about to come. Probably what they would have thought is one of these guys is about to rise up and, and challenge uh, Caesar. One of these guys is about to rise up and start a war. And, of course, that was happening all over Israel in the days of Jesus. And after the days of Jesus, there was a lot of messiahs you know, false messiahs who were rising up and starting wars. Well, Jesus was saying something a little different to them. Whenever he was saying the kingdom has just come near you, he wasn't saying I'm about to overthrow the kingdom of Rome and I'm about to militarily take over. What he was saying is somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit, that age to come, where God will be king, where the glory of God will fill the earth, where there will be no more sickness, there will be no more sin. Somehow, that age to come has just now broken into the present moment because I'm here. Because a spirit-empowered person has just come in your midst. Somehow, that whole future age, that whole future reality has just now broken into the present. And this is actually who we're called to be. We're called to be people of the age to come. We're citizens of heaven. We're citizens of another age. We're citizens of another realm. Our king is reigning right now at the hand of the Father, but one day he's going to actually reign on the earth from the city of Jerusalem, and we're going to be his princes and governors all over the earth. And we're actually called to bring that age into the present. I just think it's pretty amazing. Last night, as I was, uh, I was worshiping, I was listening to this, um, this uh, video by Upper Room. You guys, probably many of you know about Upper Room Dallas. They're this incredible young adult movement uh, that are writing some of the most anointed music on the planet right now. It's just happened in the last couple years that they've started to kind of, you know, show up on the scene. But I was listening to one of these worship sets and uh, all of a sudden, I, I bet many of you have experienced this before. Have you ever been in a meeting or maybe you heard a message or maybe you were watching a video and all of a sudden some kind of a supernatural weighty atmosphere breaks in? You know what I'm talking about? It's like something that all at once embodies like the power of God and the presence of God, but also somehow the urgency of the hour. It's like, it's, it's amazing and a little scary all at the same time. You know what I'm talking about? There's, a, there's an awe kind of factor. There's some kind of like a, wow, there is something from another world that has just shown up and it demands our reverence. It demands that we take note because what's just happened? The kingdom of God has just come near. You remember what Jesus said whenever they, uh, they accused him of casting out devils by the spirit of Beelzebub? He says, you're crazy. You know, Satan can't cast out Satan. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. But then he says, but let me propose to you another possibility. If 
instead of casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub, if I have just cast out devils by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God not has just come near you. He says, the kingdom of God has just come upon you. The kingdom of God has just come upon you. If indeed what just happened is somehow the finger of God was just released through me as I was moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has just now come upon you. And I don't know what it's been like to live in other ages and other generations, but I do know that there's something amazing that's happening in our day, in our generation, not only because... There are moments whenever the kingdom of God breaks in and there is this, you know, holy awe and this fear of God that breaks into the room. But it happens even through technology in our day. I mean, to me, that's a whole nother level. That's shocking. Have you ever been watching something and the power or presence of God manifests because of what you're watching on a device? You're not even in the room. It might have been five or ten years ago. You're not even in the moment. But somehow the kingdom of God breaks in as you're watching a recording of something that happened in a different place at a different time. I mean, that is remarkable. Uh, I remember 12 years ago now whenever the Lakeland Revival broke out. You know, I know there's been a, a lot that has happened, you know, with Todd Bentley and since Lakeland, there's been a lot. But let me tell you one thing for sure. That was a genuine move of God. And whenever it broke out, there was power that was coming through TV screens and computer screens that was showing up in homes. I mean, I remember I was in a, a bunch of us got together and we were watching these revival meetings in a garage and uh, th there was a guy who had this huge four-car garage, and 50 of us would get in there and watch it. And people would be falling out in the gravel driveway as we're watching something over a low-quality web stream. I mean, it was absolutely remarkable. It was more powerful over technology to me than actually being there. So, you know, one of my students at the time was a business owner, and he flew us down, and we went, and, and it was great. But I was like, I think I'm good to just watch it. I mean, something, but I think God was marking something in that era. That, you know, web streaming was a pretty new thing at that time. There, there was something that was shifting again, I think, that is a, a marking indicator in the time in which we live. I mean, last year, at the beginning of last year, uh, we had some remarkable things happen through our web stream at Morningstar. And this has been happening for you know a number of years, but there there's been a real marked increase the last couple years. In January of last year, during one of our services, there was a man who had been in a wheelchair for 20 years, and he was listening to one of our services, and he said he gained faith for the first time in 20 years. He said, I've been prayed for by everybody under the sun. I've prayed a hundred times, but he said, somehow, whenever the ministry time began, I, I received faith, and I reached out and grabbed the computer and I was healed and I got up out of this wheelchair. And he was emailing us a week and a half later letting us know that he's walking now. I mean, I remember sometime in the last couple of years, I remember during one of our healing services, somebody brought me a phone with a picture of a little girl. 
She wasn't on the phone. It was just a picture. I think it was this lady's niece. And she said, this is my niece right now. They're at the beach. She's got a fever of like 105.9. They're about to take her to the hospital. They're really worried. And I laid hands on the phone and I prayed for the little girl. And this girl who's three, four hundred miles away, at the very moment that we prayed, the fever broke. And by the next morning, she was back out playing on the beach again. And that kind of thing has happened. I would even dare to say that it happens all the time now. That that kind of thing is commonplace now. What is going on with that? It wasn't commonplace a hundred years ago. It was impossible a hundred years ago. You know, these are things that mark, you know, it's the men run to and fro and knowledge will increase. The technology that is exploding is actually one of the signs of the times. It's, uh, it's, It's what Daniel referred to. But I think that in the same way, Uh, that the bride reality that that the Lord calls the church at the end of the age a bride, you know, and and that lovesick reality, you're you're lovesick because you're engaged and you're getting closer to the wedding day. You know, there's something about nearness to the wedding day that marks that heart of the bride. Remember Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride cry, come. You know, Paul told the Corinthians that you can hasten the coming of the Lord. He said, we eagerly await that day and we hasten the coming of the Lord. There's something about eagerly awaiting the day. There's something about the stirring in our heart that says, Lord, you know, this life really matters. And I, I want this life to count every minute of every day. But somehow I've got my eyes set on the next life as an even more weightier reality than this life that we're living from day to day. There's something about this this bride heart that sets our eyes on the age to come. And that's how we actually, I think, release the age to come in the present day. Consider this, that um, in uh, 1 John 2... Whenever John lists out the, he talks to children, he talks to young men, and he talks to fathers. He says, I write to you children, your sins have been forgiven, and uh, you know God is your father. I write to you young men because you're strong in the word and you've overcome the evil one. And twice to fathers, he says the same thing. He says, I write to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. So in other words, Maturity, as defined by John, was those who knew God as the eternal God. The God who always was, the God who is, and the God who will be. Somehow, the God who is outside of time, that eternal God, that living for the age to come, somehow marks fathers. I think it's what distinguishes, you know, the the children phase... You can't go anywhere without that. You first have to know your sins are forgiven. You've got to know God as your father. And, you know, we're probably all still in some stage of that. But if you don't have it, at least as a foundation, you can't mature at all. But once you have that as a foundation, once we know our sins are forgiven, once we know God is father, then we can begin to grow. We can begin to get strong in the word and we can begin to actually be victorious in warfare. 
You know, you're strong in the word and you've overcome the evil one. But there's something even beyond that, something beyond security in our relationship with God, something beyond being strong in the word and beyond being victorious in warfare, and it's somehow having a vision for the eternal God. The God who's bigger than heaven and earth, who's bigger than the universe, the God who rules and reigns over this age and the age to come. And I think that the fathers that God is raising up in our day are going to be those who have already walked through enough of life to already, you know, maybe have given up and started over a few times. Maybe they've been through so many battles and so many wildernesses that they're kind of like, you remember at the end of Song of Solomon, uh, Song of Solomon uh, chapter 8, it says, Who is this who comes up out of the wilderness leaning on her beloved? It's at the end of Song of Solomon. And it's the picture of the bride who is coming out of the wilderness leaning on her beloved. Fathers, again, are the ones who their whole life becomes about the eternal God. You know, he's God over everything. Well, this picture of the bride at the end of the story in Song of Solomon, which is a whole picture of our relationship with God and how we mature and how we develop, she's coming out of the wilderness And if you read the book of Song of Solomon, you see her wilderness. She goes through trials, she's abused, she's disappointed, she fails the Lord, she lets fear cripple her. It's this whole dramatic story. And then at the end of the book, she's coming out of the wilderness and she's leaning on her beloved. In other words, she's saying, yes, Lord, I've I've succeeded and I've failed And I've been abused and mistreated and I forgave and I came out the other side and I've gone, you know, over the mountain and through the desert and over the river and through the woods. I've already kind of been there and done that. And at the end of the story, my identity is this. I am leaning on you, Jesus. I'm leaning on you. I've already given up on my own strength and making it on my own steam. I'm just leaning on you and I'm coming up out of the wilderness. I don't care if we stay in the wilderness, if we come out of the wilderness, because I'm leaning on you. I've already got what I need. And then right after that is whenever he says to her, let me set a seal on your heart and on your arm. After she comes up out of the wilderness, she's leaning on her beloved and he says, listen, I want to be sure that I mark you as a different kind of humanity from everybody else on the face of the earth. I want to set a seal of fire on your heart and on your arm. And he says, but I want you to realize this fire, it's the fire of my love. He says, this is the seal of my love. He says, its fires are a vehement flame. They're stronger than death. Many waters cannot quench this love. And I want to mark you with a seal of fire on your heart and on your arm. And of course, she says, yes, she's already been through the wilderness. She's already leaning on her beloved. She fully belongs to him. And so he marks her with fire. He marks her with fire. A couple Sundays ago uh, in our worship service, there was this young uh, worship team that was singing. It was one of the most anointed and beautiful and powerful songs I've heard in a really long time. It's a song called Refiner. You can find it on YouTube. But it's one of them scary songs. 
It was like everybody who's already been through the wilderness and through the desert was like, I'll sing this verse, but I don't know if I can sing that verse yet. It, it literally, the, the words were like, I want to be tried by fire. I want to be tested. You can take whatever you want, Jesus. You can burn everything in me that doesn't look like you. Send your fire. Take it all. Have my life. Take what you want. Let your fire come on my life. It was one of those like, Lord, I know this is the right prayer to pray, and I know it's the right song to sing, but there is something holy and fearful about singing those kinds of words. But at the end of the story, the bride who's already been around the block and back and already, she's already gone through that maturing process. She's got her eyes fixed on the age to come and the eternal God more than the God who's going to help me through the temporal issues of this life. She's leaning on her beloved, drawing her strength from him, saying it's all about you, Jesus. We'll go where you want to go. We'll do what you want to do. I'm in this with you. And it's because she came through the wilderness. She says, you can mark me with that seal of fire. You know, it's stronger than death. He says, it's a jealous love. Stronger than death, many waters can't quench this love. But right after she gets marked with that fire, he then turns with her, with this bride that's leaning on him, and the bridegroom says to her, now what are we going to do with your sister? How are we going to help her? He actually says, what shall we do for your sister who has no breasts? In other words, there's, there's one who's not mature yet. There's one who doesn't have the capacity to feed others or to give milk. She gets to enter in with the bridegroom to his ministry and he takes counsel with her about what are we going to do about the rest of the church, those who are not mature yet. Let's devise a strategy together. Let's partner together. Let's join together. And somehow that bride and bridegroom together are in partnership at the end of the age in order to prepare a bride for the coming of a bridegroom. And, you know, the, I, I don't have time to go into it, but read Song of Solomon. It's so amazing. The, the bride and the bridegroom are having their romance. And then there's all of these bridesmaids that are watching. They're not married yet, but they're watching what's happening in the life of this bride who's maturing and her romance with the bridegroom. And by the end of the book, they're ready to get married themselves. It's this incredible, incredible story. And this is who we are. This is our identity. This is who we're called to be. I want to close with this, and then I just want to pray into this for a moment. Oh, one more thing about the bride that I skipped. In chapter 7, before she comes up out of the wilderness, but she's already gone through her trials and her journey, it says, uh, he says to her, your belly is like heaps of wheat. What does that mean? I mean, what, it, what does it usually mean whenever a newly married bride has a little bit of a heap on her belly? It usually means that she is pregnant now. But specifically, she's pregnant with wheat. She's pregnant with the harvest. Something has happened in that intimacy with the bridegroom that now she's carrying something that's going to be birthed into the earth. And it came out of her intimacy with the Lord. The last thing that, uh, that I wanted to share is um, we're living in the days of the spirit of adoption. 
you know, this same reality, the bride who is preparing herself for a bridegroom, the mature ones that are learning to live more for the age to come than for this life and for this age. There's something that God offers to the church at the end of the age that's called the spirit of adoption. It's what Malachi prophesied whenever he said, Elijah or the spirit of Elijah will come before that great and terrible day of the Lord. And it says he will turn the hearts of sons to fathers and the hearts of fathers to sons. It's this picture of the spirit of adoption. The spirit of Elijah is what it's called. Elijah was the one who moved in signs and wonders, you know, raising the dead, calling down fire from heaven, multiplication, you know, breaking the laws of physics. So there's something about the spirit of Elijah, which is the spirit of adoption that the Lord releases at the end of the age. And it's these who say yes to the spirit of adoption in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation is waiting for. All of creation is groaning for is what it actually says. They're groaning. All of creation is groaning in order to be delivered from bondage to corruption and decay. But then it says, and the spirit groans eagerly. The spirit groans. So creation is groaning because they're under corruption. They're the ones that are under deep darkness, like Isaiah chapter 60. They're groaning because of the corruption of the curse. And the spirit groans. The spirit groans, the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's not many spirits of God, so to speak. There's many manifestations of the Spirit of God. One of the manifestations of the Spirit of God is the Spirit of adoption. And this Spirit of adoption is what the Holy Spirit's called in Romans chapter 8. He's groaning for two reasons. He sees the bondage to the curse in the earth, and he sees all of creation groaning and crying out to be delivered. You know, the rose bush is groaning to be delivered from the curse so that the thorns would fall off. The earth is groaning to be delivered from the curse that it could bring forth the fullness of fruit again. And my and your neighbors are groaning to be delivered from bondage. They're groaning to be delivered from captivity to Satan, the God of this world who blinds the eyes of the unbelieving. And so the spirit groans for their sake and it also groans for sons and daughters to say yes to the spirit of adoption. And then it says, And we who have the spirit groan inwardly, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. There's also this groaning that happens in the heart of those who say yes. Ultimately, we're waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We're ultimately focused on the age to come, when the Lord returns and when we cast off this body of sin and death and we're freed from the old man and all the carnal ways of this world. Ultimately, that's what we're groaning for. But from now until then, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption says, I can work with one who groans over the condition of the earth. I can work with one who groans with a lovesick yearning for that wedding day, one who's already set their eyes on the coming age to come, the wedding day. I can work with someone like that. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit of adoption, endues those sons and daughters of God with power, and they become the ones that are the answer to the groaning of creation. 
you know, the whole, the whole inaugurated eschatology thing is about, yes, it began at Pentecost, but it's more and more so the closer we get to the coming of the Lord. That's why it's called birth pangs. Birth pangs are, you know, very clearly, whenever my wife was in labor, uh, she, you know, the baby's not here yet. It's clear that she's pregnant, but then she goes into labor pains, and there's something that begins happening in the present moment that's revealing the future reality. The baby's not here yet, but there's a groaning. There is a manifestation. There's something that's breaking forth into the here and now. It's called a labor pain. It's called a, contrap- a contraction, not a contraption. There's a contraction that is breaking out, and it's revealing what is to come. And labor pains get closer and closer together, and they get more and more intense until the time of birth. And it's the exact same way with the labor pains that mark the end of the age or the eschaton. There's an increase. There is increasing measure, both of the manifestation of darkness and the manifestation of the kingdom of God. You know, those that Jesus in Matthew 13, he said that he is sowing sons of the kingdom into the earth and that they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. We don't have time to go there, but the sons of the kingdom are those who are actually at the end of the age manifesting the kingdom before the time. Just like labor pains manifest the birth before the time. The sons of the kingdom begin to move in, of course, you know, healing and deliverance. And, you know, there's no sick people in the age to come. There's no demonic oppression in the age to come. Every mind is fully known in the age to come. So they're walking in all kinds of word of wisdom, word of knowledge, discerning of spirits, gifts of prophecy. They become, in this age, the people of the age to come. And I wanted to specifically just encourage you that this prophecy about Bob Jones' grave, which is, if I have my bearings right, somewhere right about there, yeah, it was something that was happening at the site of Bob Jones' grave that became a sign to the rest of the earth that the church was going to step into her identity as bride. There was something that was going to reveal as a timing indicator that it's time for the people of God to become co-heirs with Him. It's time for the people of God to say, yes, even in the midst of love sickness, even in hunger and thirst, which is where you're yearning for something that you don't have, even in the midst of the ache and the pain of wrestling through our own issues and we fall down but we get back up and we say yes to God and then we miss it but we keep pursuing, saying, Lord, there's one thing that I'm after. There is an age coming whenever you're going to do away with all of this stuff and we're living as much for the age to come as we're living for the present day. And I'm certainly not there yet, but I do believe it's something that we're called to. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me? I just want to pray for you and then uh, David's going to come. Well, God, we thank you for this incredible invitation Lord, you're looking for partnership. You're looking for a bride. You're looking to plant sons of the kingdom into the earth at the end of the age. And we just want to say yes to you. 
God, we want to be those who carry the reality of the age to come. God, we want to carry something that is awesome, something that inspires awe because it comes from another age and another world. And we say, Lord, by your blood and by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, would you prepare us as vessels here at the end of the age to carry forth the kingdom of God into the earth? We just want to say yes to that. God, we say yes, even to the love sickness, Lord, even to that yearning, aching inside where we've fallen so deep in love with you and we've tasted of something and intimacy and fellowship that's ruined us forever. Even if we have to go long stretches without tasting it again, we just say, God, we submit our hearts and our affections to you. You deserve our affections. You deserve our hearts. You deserve our love. And for those who say yes, Lord, we just, we, we hand over our affections to you and we just say yes to that, even that love sickness reality, that, that rose of Sharon identity. We say, Lord, help us to come into that identity, that confident place, Lord, where we know who we are. We know that we are crazy about you and you're crazy about us. We just say, God, would you mark us with that kind of identity, that kind of reality. And I pray especially for this church, Lord. Would you raise up those from this body that are going to demonstrate the powers of the age to come, that are going to carry something right here in Wilkes County, God. They're going to carry something right here that would become a sign and a wonder to the ends of the earth. Lord, this is an international missions base and there is something that's meant to be released from here that goes to the ends of the earth. And God, we say, would you do something even ahead of time? God, even if it's not time for the whole body to step into it yet, God, would you release it here as a witness, God, as a testimony, as a foreshadowing of what you intend to do in the whole body. Lord, release it here, that Rose of Sharon kind of identity. Thank you, Lord. Amen.